Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Здравствуйте, дорогие друзья! Hi everyone! Thank you for watching this. What is the oldest human conflict? A conflict present in all societies, cultures and periods in history. It is, of course, a conflict between generations. The youth want change and the old want to keep traditions going. This generational conflict is built in or pre-installed in human biology which drives evolution. But sometimes the youth want radical change, not evolution but a bloody revolution. Here's a question. Did Fyodor Dostoevsky predict the Russian Revolution of 1917 some 50 years before it happened? Dostoevsky's novel Demon centers on a radical young man who brings a bloody socialist revolution in a Russian town. Here's an interesting twist or historical irony. As Dostoevsky was writing Demons in the same year, 1870, one of the most influential Russian babies was born, who grew up to do exactly what Dostoevsky was writing about, changing Russia's history forever. It was Vladimir Lenin whose Socialist Revolution 1917 set up the USSR, a kind of replica of Dostoevsky's fictional revolution. Incidentally, Dostoevsky's novel Demons was published in 1871, but apparently Lenin refused to read it because he considered it reactionary garbage. Who knows what might have happened had he read the novel as a boy or teenager. Dostoevsky's Demons is not only a political satire but also a psychological drama and a social tragedy set in Russia after the emancipation of Serbs in 1860s, which is also the golden age of Russian literature that gave birth to three masterpieces, Turgenev's Fathers and Sons in 1862, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment in 1866, and Tolstoy's War and Peace in 1869. Outside literature, the 1860s was a politically volatile and idea-charged period where westernized radicals fought Russian traditionalists. Today I'll summarize Demons, consider one of Dostoevsky's most important novels, and later discuss some of the themes such as nihilism, hedonism, and suicide. I will also compare Dostoevsky's Demons to Turgenev's masterpiece Fathers and Sons, and how they depict nihilism differently. Also, to make it interesting, Dostoevsky has a character in the novel based on Turgenev himself, which I think puts Dostoevsky in a somewhat negative light. Bessie, in Russian translated to English as the possessed 
or the Devils or Demons is a first-person narrative by Anton G, a civil servant and whose and close friend of the main intellectual Stepan Verkhovinsky, who is the inspiration behind the radical youth. Anton is somewhat similar to Dostoevsky himself, who was part of a radical group in his own youth, so he knows the characters inside out, almost omniscient. He fondly remembers the younger days of Stepan as a promising young man with a university career ahead of him, but his radical western ideas prevented him to get a job. Instead, he's employed as a personal tutor by Varvara Stravogina to teach her son Nikolai Stavrogin, a young aristocrat who becomes the main and the most complex character of the novel. Stepan is an older man, a westernized intellectual who has a big influence on the young people, including his own son Pyotr Verkhovinsky, who is another important character and the main instigator of a socialist revolution. Just like all Dostoevsky's novels, there are far too many fully developed characters. But I'll focus on the intellectual Stepan, but more in the background, his son Pyotr as the main revolutionary protagonist, and Nikolai, whom Pyotr wants to recruit because of his aristocratic influence. The westernized Pyotr Verkhovinsky, similar to Vladimir Lenin some decades later, orchestrates a revolution. The aristocrat Nikolai Strovrogin, the main and the most charismatic character in the novel, opposes the revolution but not with all his energy. Why? The aristocrat has some dark secrets himself, so he is preoccupied to cover his own dirty laundry. Pyotr looks up to the charming Nikolai and tries to recruit the aristocrat in his revolutionary causes. Stepan Verkhovinsky, Pyotr's father and Nikolai's teacher, represents the idealistic group of westernized intellectuals. But now that he is a bit older and wiser, he is not eager to promote revolution and chaos. Ivan Shatov, a fierce enemy of westernized Pyotr, is another idealist who favors the Russian Orthodox culture and faith, himself having gone through a radical western phase as a young man, just like Dostoevsky himself did before his Siberian exile. Ivan Shatov is partly religious and partly nationalistic, again just like Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky was reformed in Siberia, but Ivan Shatov is reformed through his travels in Europe and Russia. He is a Slavophile who believes in the Orthodox faith, Russian soil and peasants. Again very similar to Dostoevsky himself. Pochvene Chestvo, meaning return to soil, which was a 19th century movement in Europe and Russia, somewhat similar to Romanticism based on championing certain people or ethnicity with its extremist version being fascism. But here it meant promoting unity among various groups of Slavic people. Ivan Shatov's housemate Alexei Krylov, an engineer who seems like a Christian socialist, is seeking to sacrifice himself for the good of society, just like Jesus. He's a deep thinker, perhaps the thinking side of Dostoevsky himself. I think Dostoevsky noticed the similarities between socialism and Christianity as they both promoted equality, fairness, and promised a heaven-like utopia, but their method of achieving such utopia are radically different. It's autumn before the cold of Siberia hits Russia. We are in a small provincial town somewhere in Russia. Instead of gathering firewoods for the cold winter, the people in this town are organizing a ball to get drunk and recite poetry, but that's on the surface. In reality, it's not a ball, it's a bloody coup or revolution that chops people's balls, not literally though. 
We meet the intellectual Stepan Verkhovensky, our spiritual leader and teacher to the young people in the novel, whose promising career prospect vanished due to his radical ideas. Instead of becoming a university professor, he has been living in the house of a wealthy landlady, Varvara Stavrogina. He was initially employed as a tutor to educate her son Nikolai, the young aristocrat who becomes the main character in the novel. But as years passed, he found himself comfortable there, and the landlady also enjoys his platonic company and his intelligence and artistic mind. Varvara has just returned from Switzerland to talk to Stepan about his money problem, but most importantly discuss some unsavory rumors that has been circulating about her son Nikolai, whom Dostoevsky likens to the playboy Prince Harry, not that one but the one in Shakespeare's play Henry V and Fourth. The young Nikolai is a man of many contradictions, with bad boy tendencies, also cynical and almost amoral, who manipulates women to sleep with him in his hedonistic pursuits. In the past, he was also involved in a duel, pulled someone's nose, and even did Mike Tyson on someone by biting his ear. Varvara first twists Stepan's ears for spending too much money and tells him to be more responsible with his credit card. You're a grown man, goddammit. But her real concern is her son's liaison with a few women. The beautiful Lisa, her friend's daughter, the reliable Dasha, her own protege, and the mentally handicapped woman called Maria. To resolve this entanglement, Varvara convinces, I guess forces, Stepan to marry Dasha, to hit two birds with one stone. It solves his money problem, but also takes her away from Nikolai to hide some sinister secrets in the family, which Stepan eventually realizes. There's a lot going on in the state, and it all has to do with the young aristocrat Nikolai, who's been having a lot of fun with multiple women, even marrying Maria, who seems to be mentally challenged. Her mother Varvara tries everything to keep a lid on the scandals through money, coercion, and persuasion, but she can only do so much. But this is not only a family drama, it's a Russian social drama. The hedonist Nikolai is a mere representative of Russian aristocracy, lazy, womanizing, and pleasure-seeking. We have a meeting where everything comes to a head. Dostoevsky is a master of putting various characters together to confront one another and have an open, volatile discourse. It's like a percussion orchestra. A large sum of money is involved in secret marriage and many dishonored activities. It's like the Jeremy Kyle show or the Oprah soap opera, where everyone screams and people show up suddenly from nowhere. Nikolai himself, the subject of the scandals, is conveniently absent from the meeting. But another young man shows up, a stranger who starts over-talking everyone in the meeting. Who could it be? It is our revolutionary Pyotr, Stepan's son. A man with a plan, but we don't know what his real plan is. Then suddenly Nikolai shows up and takes away Maria while telling everyone that he's not married to her. Once Nikolai is gone, Pyotr, the revolutionary, tells Varvara that Maria's mental illness forced Nikolai to look after her, and that's why she believed this was marriage. He paints her son as a noble man who rescued a sick woman, not someone who took advantage of her. We know what Pyotr is up to here. He has a ruthless plan to ingratiate himself with Nikolai by rescuing him from his scandalous life, so that the aristocrats become the patron of his socialist revolution. If you can't beat the system from outside, beat it from the inside through what you could term as blackmail. His plan is to blackmail all the influential people in town. Then it's an easy revolution where you don't have to call an army. Pewter makes up some other stories to corroborate Nikolai's innocence in all this. Lady Varvara is happy that her son is a good man after all. But Pewter wants his father out of his plans. How can he remove him from the scene? 
He lies about his father Stepan, confessing that he's being forced to marry Dasha. Varvara is shocked to hear this, so she tells Stepan to pack his bag and leave immediately. Dasha's brother Ivan Shatov, Pyotr's arch enemy, who has been silently watching everyone, walks up to Nikolai and does a Will Smith on him by smacking him in the face. The beautiful Lisa faints. The first drama is over. This was just a prelude, so the main course will sacrifice a few cows, I mean people, because we will have a revolution. Just remember, it's fiction. Summary Part 2 The Stavrogin family scandal spreads like a wildfire. Everyone is too ashamed to be involved in the drama, so they hide themselves from social media. I mean the town's gossip. But one man is out there talking to everyone on YouTube, on radio and on TV. I mean he's out there talking to people on the streets, cafes and everywhere. He's not afraid of the gossip. It's our young revolutionary socialist Pyotr. Here we also learn about his cunning plan to recruit Nikolai, the most powerful and influential aristocrat for his revolutionary cause. Nikolai understands his own terrible predicament, however shows a cold shoulder but doesn't refuse him overtly either. He has a bigger problem. His own life is on the line. Someone whom he had insulted a while back has challenged him to a duel. We are in Russia, baby. But as it turns out, he survives the duel. Dostoevsky doesn't want to kill him yet. Nikolai, in search of a backer for his duel, comes face to face with Ivan Shatov, who instead of slapping again, confronts him about his hypocrisy of pretending to be a Christian on the one hand, and making false promises of marriage to women on the other. Nikolai tries to explain his religious conviction, but it's pretty lame. So he tries scare tactics, saying that because Ivan Shatov was a former revolutionary himself, and now reform, he is being hunted down by his former comrades, including Pyotr. After leaving that frightening seed inside Shatov's mind, Nikolai leaves him alone to brood. Nikolai goes to Maria, his alleged wife, telling her to escape with him to Switzerland for some peas and some Swiss cheese. Nikolai has had enough of Russia and its endless dramas. But Maria is deeply dismayed by his previous action of disowning her in front of everyone. She thinks the man has no backbone. She tells him no. Nikolai's patient is at its limits now. He becomes violent towards her. Once outside the house, he comes face to face with Fetka, a convicted criminal whom Pyotr has recruited to assist Nikolai, perhaps in getting rid of his wife Maria to stop the scandal. Nikolai is in a very foul mood, so he first attacks Fetka and then insults him by throwing some money at him. Oh boy, this impulsive act wasn't wise. Nikolai later realizes that it was not wise to give the criminal money because by paying the convict, he has somehow implicated himself in a possible murder. It is possible Fetka assumes the money was a payment to murder Maria, Nikolai's wife. Pyotr has Nikolai completely wrapped, so he inches towards his revolution by targeting another influential person in town, the governor's wife, Julia. He uses his sexual seduction and masculine charm to control her. Pyotr and some of his comrades infiltrate Julia's private parties to talk about the ills of the system so that they mentally prepare the people for a revolution. The governor himself knows what's happening but he has no power over his wife because she only listens to charming young Pyotr. 
who runs the town like a mafia boss. But he's still not there yet, he has a few other plans to fall into place before he can achieve his socialist revolution. He gathers everyone including Nikolai and Shatov to tell them about the violent overthrow of the government. While everyone agrees with him, Shatov and Nikolai leave the meeting to show their dissent. Pyotr is not happy so he follows Nikolai and his tactic to recruit him for a revolution becomes bizarre and farcical. Pyotr confesses that he loves Nikolai and even kisses his hand. His blackmail didn't work so he uses sexual charm. Dostoevsky depicts his atheist as somewhat pathetic. I don't know what sort of atheists were around in Russia in those days. Or perhaps Dostoevsky saw atheists as nothing but cartoonish people. Pyotr tickles Nikolai's ego by promising him the leadership position and the new revolutionary regime. Nobody can say no to power, of course. Nikolai remains silent, but we know he wants it. That devil wants power. Despite all his personal problems with women, he wants to be the leader. So far things have been calm, just ideas, conversations and gossip. Now Dostoevsky cranks it up a notch. Ideas turn to violence, only if you really believe in those ideas. People die for their beliefs, but also kill others for their beliefs. So ideas can liberate you, but also become your worst demons. Things begin to go south for the small Russian town. Julia, the governor's wife, has arranged a gala or ball in which all the influential people of the town are supposed to gather for some great food, drinks, conversation and even poetry. But before the gala starts, we have some revolutionaries and workers gather outside the governor's house and there's a mad chaos. Some madness as the governor loses his shit and starts acting like a lunatic. The man knows he has lost his wife and his powers, so we have a revolution. But remember, we also have a family drama here. Nikolai tells everyone that he is indeed married to Maria, the madwoman. Seeing this, people are a bit distracted from the actual revolution, instead everyone is interested in the gossip. There is a war going on in the world, but Will Smith did what? Dostoevsky shows that we humans are not as rational as we might think we are. At times we enjoy gossip more than actually worrying about revolutions or wars. We need gossip, stories and family dramas to calm our nerves. The gala takes place and since we are in Russia, a few drunkards invade the stage and some other dramas. But the star of the show is a great writer, Karmazinov. Dostoevsky uses his character to poke fun at Ivan Turgenev who was more a westernized writer more like a French artistic writer who reads a poem titled Merci if you thought he wasn't French enough. He annoys the hell out of everyone by spending a long time talking nonsense without getting to the point. This is pretty cheap of Dostoevsky if I'm being honest. He disliked Turgenev for his secularism. Sure Dostoevsky can tell great psychological stories but no Russian writer is as poetic as Turgenev when it comes to writing about nature and the countryside. The gala turns into a farce, people are drunk and Pyotr consoles Julia that everything is fine. Later that evening the ball continues but things start to go farther south. Someone shouts fire and everyone panics. Julia the hostess faints and her husband the governor is knocked unconscious. The town is burning all night. There is also news that Maria and her brother have been murdered. Nikolai, our main hero, oblivious to all these events, is spending the night with the beautiful Lisa. At some point there is a knock on the door. Pyotr is here to convey that Fetka, the convict whom Nikolai had thrown money at, has murdered both Maria and her brother. Lisa rushes to find out for herself. Nikolai tries to stop her but the woman walks right into the chaos and gets herself killed in the process. Pyotr's revolution triumphs, but there is no time for celebration. Now it's time to take revenge. Most revolutions are act of revenge, and this is no different. Pyotr and his comrades punished those who opposed him. 
he murders Ivan Shatov, a former socialist turned against revolution. He then finds his housemate Kurilov and they have a titanic debate which conveniently ends when Kurilov commits suicide. So the murder of Ivan Shatov can be blamed on Kurilov, who is dead and unable to defend himself. It's like an atomic bomb has exploded in town. Pyotr's father Stepan, the teacher, the spiritual leader to the young man, flees the town on foot. But he's stricken by an illness and dies while regretting his life and asking God for forgiveness. He says, quote, God is necessary to me, if only because he is the only being whom one can love eternally. This was Dostoevsky's main reason for the existence of God. We cannot love a human being forever because humans are flawed. Each generation wants to have a new human God. To solve this, Dostoevsky wanted a non-human God. There are a few more deaths, including a newborn child. Once the dust settles, many things come to light. A man confesses about the plot exposing the revolutionary circle. The authorities round the revolutionaries one by one and one man is missing. Pyotr has left the town heading for St. Petersburg. The last shocking news in the novel is that Nikolai, who had abused many women, has committed suicide inside his state. He spent his entire life seeking more and more pleasures. Dostoevsky's biggest problem with the godless world was self-indulgence. He traveled the world, he slept with many women, he sought those things to numb the pain of his empty existence. But nothing quenched his thirst. His death finally put a stop to his suffering. His mother is distraught beyond belief. This all sounds like a terrible nightmare. But as history of Russia transpired, some 50 years after the publication of Demons, Russia woke up to the October revolutions of 1917 by Bolsheviks. The Romanovs were murdered soon after to establish the USSR which ruled Russia for 70 years. Analysis Nihilism The main premise of the novel is this assumption that bad ideas possesses one's soul like demons do. Once it takes over you begin to act like crazy. A good analogy would be rabies in dogs. The virus gets into their brain and controls them from the inside. There are two demons in the novel, nihilism and hedonism. On the one hand we have atheism of Pyotr, whose revolution brings a lot of chaos in the fictional town. His character and his ideas are a bit farcical. His demon is his western indoctrination or ideology to change Russia in order to bring equality by destroying the old system. It's much like the socialists that came after 1905 and 1917 revolutions. These Russian radicals were influenced by the German and French utopian socialism who believed in creating a perfect society that runs like a clockwork where everyone is happy and equal. Dostoevsky joined a socialist circle as a young man which resulted in his exile to Siberia. Here he looks back at those naive and youthful days when he was possessed with new shiny ideas without really knowing the consequence of their activities. I think the youth in every society has a desire for change while the old try to resist change because they have seen it all through their life experiences. Dostoevsky as an older man looks back at his own youth. This nihilistic demon was also the main theme in Turgenev's novel Fathers and Sons published 10 years before Dostoevsky's demons. For me Fathers and Sons are far more artistic in how the nihilist is transformed through his own encounters with the real world and his own experiences. Turgenev is much more methodical by highlighting the differences between hot-headed youth and the calm of the old people. The young are naive to the reality of the world, while the older are stuck in their assumptions and biases. 
But ultimately, in Turgenev's novel, the youth with their new sexy ideas lose against lifetime experience of the old because they are more grounded in reality. So experience wins against ideas. Dostoevsky, in his usual messy titanic style, bangs characters against each other, which is incredibly inciting and dramatic. Turgenev is like a violinist in a quiet countryside, while Dostoevsky is like a percussionist in the midst of urban hustle and bustle. Also, Dostoevsky's depiction of Karmazinov, whom everyone considered to be Turgenev, is not justified for me. As a conservative man, Dostoevsky disliked Turgenev for his liberal European outlook, which is fair enough, but he depicts Turgenev as rambly and confusing, which is completely the opposite of the real Turgenev. Reading Turgenev's novels, which are very short compared to Dostoevsky's long, winding novels, they are incredibly to the point. Turgenev's stories are far more poetic and beautiful to his French influence, I think, but they lack the excitement and drama of Dostoevsky's storytelling. Turgenev's nihilist character in Father and Son, Bazarov, is a far more rounded character than Dostoevsky's Pyotr who is almost cartoonish at times in how rigid he is in his ideas. I think Turgenev is a more objective writer compared to Dostoevsky, who was a conservative Russian, disliked most things that came from the West. Did Turgenev and later Dostoevsky foresee the Russian Revolution? Russia in 1860s was a chaotic place, as 30 million serfs were suddenly freed, so they flooded the cities for opportunities. Obviously, Moscow and St. Petersburg couldn't absorb everyone, so poverty, homelessness, prostitution, etc. led to a lot of chaos. The serfs in the country used to be controlled by the landowners. Now they were free, but also hungry for change. Turgenev's father and sons came out a year after the emancipation of serfs, so he said this story in the countryside. Dostoevsky's demons came out 10 years after the emancipation of serfs, so most cities were flooded with the poor, which the radical intellectuals saw as a reason to revolt against the monarchy. A lot of Dostoevsky's characters are based on real people who were active in the 1860s. Russia's highly unequal and volatile socio-economic infrastructure on the one hand and its highly communitarian values on the other provided the ideal conditions for socialism to grow and ultimately overthrow the Tsarist system. Dostoevsky also saw a connection between utopian socialism and Christianity, especially in the character of Kirillov who wants to sacrifice himself for the greater good to become a Jesus-like figure. Now we see the connection between socialism and Christianity more clearly as they both promise a future utopia, one on earth, the other on the afterlife. Here Dostoevsky questions revolution as a means of achieving that which is violent. He was against violence in any form. As a small man myself, I understand Dostoevsky's concern about violence. Dostoevsky understood that once you stick to your idea or ideology or tribe, then violence against those outside your circle, tribe, ideology becomes an easy act for you. Because you have a goal and anything that stands in front of you needs to be removed. The old adage, the end justifies the means. Hedonism. The second demon Dostoevsky is talking about is more psychological. Nikolai symbolizes a kind of self-indulgence hedonism, a thirst for sex, power and pleasure. If Pyotr was possessed by utopian social justice demons, Nikolai was possessed by his carnal desire of sleeping with women, seeking quick gratification in life. His demon is his own body. Pyotr was possessed in the head, while Nikolai was possessed in the body, mainly in his penis area, I guess. 
but he's also possessed in his desire for power. Despite not being convinced by Pyotr's revolutionary or utopian ideas, Nikolai hopes the revolution puts him at the helm so he can fulfill his desire for power. And who knows, more women too. The central question Dostoevsky is asking is this, if modernity liberated people from God, religion and traditions, has it replaced those things with something meaningful? His answer is no. Since modernity killed God, people feel more and more empty on the inside. Once something is empty, it is very easy to fill it with something cheap, instantaneous and temporary. You either fall into the hands of shiny ideologies like idealism, rationalism, materialism, atheism, socialism and so forth. If ideas are not your thing, you fill your void with shopping, sex, addiction, endless travels or social media. But unfortunately, all those things are only temporary. So in the long run, nothing can quench your thirst or fill the void. So the only option left is... Suicide. In 1890s, Emil Durkheim, the French sociologist, made a connection between the rise of suicide and religious faith. He found that the Protestants in Northern Europe were killing themselves at a higher rate than the Catholics of Southern Europe. Apart from the cold and warm climate, the only other explanation was that Protestantism promoted individualism, while Catholicism promoted community. When you're part of a community, you're less likely to feel empty. Dostoevsky also makes that connection that since Russians were losing faith, there were more suicide as a result. Kirillov and Nikolai both commit suicide at the end, and there are also a few more suicides in the novel. Nikolai due to his guilty past and Kirillov due to his belief. Once the social fabric of Russian society is broken, people either become erratic revolutionaries or pleasure-seeking hedonists, or the third option, killing themselves. Of course, Russians didn't listen to Dostoevsky and went ahead with their revolution. And then 70 years later, they said goodbye to socialism. I wonder what Dostoevsky would think of today's Russia. I should point out that Putin is a huge Dostoevsky fan and his advisor Alexander Dugin too. So they agree with Dostoevsky in keeping bad Western ideas away from the country. Final words. The novel reads partly like a political drama and partly comedy. The botched revolution is more like a farcical revolution performed on stage. I think Dostoevsky is serious, but also not serious. He poses his usual questions about atheism, religion, meaning and irrationality of humans. Despite being psychological, the political tone and the setting of the novel make it less serious. In this novel, Dostoevsky is in his most Gogol-style comedy. Pyotr is cartoonishly square in his socialist ideology. The most complicated character is of course his father Stepan, whose intellectual life is a bag of contradictions. He lives with this woman yet has no romantic relationships. He has revolutionary ideas but condemns revolution. He's an atheist who turns to God. I think as humans we go through many stages in life. When young we have radical tendencies, won't change, question traditions and the system. As we grow older, we establish ourselves through our jobs, family, children and material success, we tend to become more conservative and want to keep traditions. Dostoevsky depicts his own experience of radical youth versus his experience old age. In this novel, he reflects on that. Perhaps the most psychologically complex character is Nikolai, whose existence is perhaps the most mysterious and the most horrifying too. He is possessed by his own inner demons of sex, deception and power. He doesn't have any deep principles. He's not a black and white character but varying shades of grey. 
perhaps 50 shades when it comes to his entanglement with endless women. Dostoevsky shows the complexity of human existence. We want progress but often very quickly without really thinking about the consequences. Human history is littered with violence in the forms of revolutions, conquests, wars and often due to the whims of some ill-advised individuals whose grasp of reality is quite superficial. Each generation wants different things. The young want to change society, the old want to keep the traditions going. Perhaps there should be a balance there. Without new ideas, societies stagnate and without traditions, societies fall apart. Dostoevsky warned young people to think twice before starting a revolution. Listen to those older than yourself because they experience life longer. Don't be too stuck in your own ideas. But Dostoevsky also shows how the old are stuck in their assumptions and biases which blind him to see the value of change sometimes. So this old generational conflict is almost guaranteed to continue for the rest of human existence. But the best way to feel and experience each generation's perspective and to comprehensively understand the other can be done best through reading great literature. Thank you for watching. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.